0: Last week we saw how God comforts his people to be a light to the nations, but where the comfort for Judah, the people of Israel, came after discipline for their sin, the comfort for the Messiah comes after his humiliation in obedient service to the point of death. And so today we're going to see from these chapters that God exalts his servant after obedient sacrifice. God exalts his servant, first of all, despite rejection by men. We see this at the beginning or the end of chapter 52 and the beginning of chapter 53. First of all, how God exalts his servant at the end of chapter 52. He prospers and exalts him according to verse 13. And uh, when it says, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. I see a parallel here to what we see in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, specifically chapter 1, verse 20 and following. It says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And when Isaiah's audience would have heard these words that his servant would prosper and be high and lifted up and exalted. They would not necessarily have thought what we think or see looking back on the ministry of Jesus Christ and how He fulfilled these words, and yet they would have seen this expectation, this anticipation that God would exalt His servant. For most of them though, even the disciples, even those in Jesus' day, there seems to have been this sense that how could the one sent by God be rejected? And how could the one sent by God be rejected so specifically that he would be crucified? And how could he be a humble carpenter? And All of these sorts of things. They, they couldn't see the connection, it seems, for the most part, between what it says at the end of chapter 52 and what they saw in the person of Jesus. And perhaps in part that was because we saw, or they saw, rather, in Jesus' day, more what we see in verses 14 and following rather than the exaltation. Before the exaltation, he would be humbled. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. We saw this also in um, uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7, the idea that to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And then I'm sure we're probably familiar with what it says in Philippians chapter 2 with regard to Jesus humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made obedient to the point of death. And because of all these things, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. And yet the first part that's emphasized here is the humiliation, the being despised, the being rejected. God's going to exalt his servant, but first he would be humbled. And yet through this humbling he would accomplish cleansing for many, and even astonished kings. We see that in John chapter 12. There's this fascinating exchange, uh, first of all, uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet, and then he enters Jerusalem, and then he speaks of his death. Uh, there's some Greeks who come up to see him in verses 20 through 26, and then uh, in verses 27 and following, we see Jesus saying, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, others that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate The way in which the kind of death by which he was to die and in that context when he says he'll draw all men to myself uh i don't think he's saying that every last person would believe on him that's very clear that that was not the case but rather there's greeks standing over here listening there's israelites standing over here listening there's potentially samaritans rich and poor scholar and common person all of these people are standing there listening jesus is saying if i'm lifted up i'm going to draw people to myself and that leads us as well, I think, to uh, what it says in Isaiah 52:15. He will sprinkle many nations. This idea of sprinkling is uh, the atonement that the priests would do. There was uh, water and there was blood and they would take it and they would uh, dip, particularly with regard to the blood, they would dip hyssop into the blood and they would sprinkle it over the people as a sign of cleansing. And so what it is saying here is Jesus, by his sacrifice, would sprinkle, would accomplish cleansing, would accomplish purification for many nations. And Jesus says the exact same thing in John 12. I'll draw all people to myself. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter if they're from Greece or Rome. doesn't matter if they're a tax collector or a fisherman or a rabbi or any of those things. That is not what is important. What is important is that his death accomplishes salvation for all kinds of people throughout history. We see also in the end of Luke 23, just the response of astonishment. Luke 23, Pilate summons the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and then I will release him. We'll see more of that in a moment but they're astonished by the fact that the people are trying to crucify this man who's innocent there's no reason for him to be crucified and so we see in particularly in verse 13 that god is going to exalt his servant but god is going to exalt his servant despite rejection by men and we see this at the beginning of chapter 53 people didn't believe the message of god through his servant if we go back to john 12 Verse 37, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has heard God's word and who has seen God's power? God's people did. And yet, verse 38 of John 12, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their hearts, so they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. God's people saw the message from God in the words of Jesus, demonstrated time and time again. I come from the Father. I speak for the Father. I return to the Father believe in the Father, believe also in me. Have, if, I, if it were any way other than what I've said, I would tell you all of these statements over and over again Jesus makes. And the people almost entirely reject that message. Who has believed our report? There's this sense not of desperation, but of, of grief that here is truth and people are blind to it and unwilling to, to accept it. And it wasn't just the words that Jesus said. It was the miracles that He performed that showed that He was from God, that He had God's power, that He was in fact God. And they saw those miracles and they heard those words and either one of those things should have been sufficient to lead them to belief, but they did not believe. And the passage says, why didn't they believe? Because God had hardened their hearts and closed their eyes and all those sorts of things. And yet, even though that was true, they were without excuse. Like it says in the book of Romans, We see people sinning and we say, well, I would never do that. I'm a better person than that. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2, you who judge others for the sin that they do, do you do the same kinds of things? I can't believe that person would lie. Do you lie? I can't believe that that person would commit adultery. Do you commit adultery by action or in your thoughts? I can't believe that that person would... Be angry uh, to the point of murder. Are you angry almost to the point of murder in your thoughts or your actions toward another person? I can't believe that that person would and fill in the blank. And yet the reality is we too can be blinded just as the Israelites were. We can have truth. We can see God's power and provision revealed time and again like we were talking about in Sunday school. And we can still be blind to God's truth, and reject it, we can convince ourselves things are fine between us and God. Why? Because I've always been in church, or I've prayed all my life, or I give money to help people in need, or any number of things that I think we easily think are the defining markers of what it means to know God. But here's the problem. Sitting in church doesn't make you a follower of God any more than sitting in your car makes you a race car driver. Maybe that's not the best illustration. Being in a place doesn't connect you with God. I'm not saying don't come because there are things that we need to minister to one another in ways that we cannot do if we just sit at home by ourselves. There's also an aspect to which we can do some of those things during the week, which we tend not to think of, but just being here doesn't make you right with God. Just saying, well, here's how much I pray every week doesn't necessarily automatically make you right with God. Reading a lot of Christian books, hearing a lot of Christian things, having Christian sayings on the wall of your house, Uh, trying to give people the impression that uh, as a good Christian, here's all the things I don't do. That is not what should define your relationship with God, although some of those things are connected with what it means to follow God. What does it mean to know God? It means Jesus has commanded that we receive eternal life. Eternal life is coming to know Him, and God the Father through Him and the work of the Spirit in connection with both of them and it is an ongoing relationship with God that we love him and obey him and seek to learn more about him and do what he has said and demonstrate love for the people around us. Those are the things that the Bible lays out as markers of those who follow God. And it's so easy for us to say, Well, you know, loving your neighbor is really hard. It's a lot easier to say, did you read your Bible today? And I'm not saying don't read your Bible. It's important for us to meditate on God's Word. But you can check off every day, I read my Bible, I read my Bible, I read my Bible, I read my Bible, and still go to hell. You can check off, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, and still go to hell. You can give everyone around you the impression that you know God, and still go to hell. How do I know that? Because it says in Matthew, there are going to be people in the final day of judgment who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do, 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 and do? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. And that should terrify us. Because of God's people who had all of these privileges, they had the law, they had the miracles of the crossing of the Red Sea and the plagues on Egypt and the provision in the wilderness and the defeat of the people when they got to the promised land and God's protection of the nations that tried to defeat them until they finally were idolatrous over and over again and God let them be carried away into exile, if they had all those things, if they had God restoring them from exile, bringing them back to the land, preserving them to some degree as a nation, and then when Jesus comes, they say, yeah, we don't think you're the Messiah. We should take that to heart. You can know God's word and see God's power and still reject God's servant. I think this passage calls us to examine ourselves and say, is my hope and trust, my confidence for the future, if I were to drop dead this moment and stand before God, on what basis would I hope to be in God's presence forever as one of His people? If it is, well, I've heard a lot of Christian things, and I've seen God do things that I can't explain. And all of that sort of thing, instead of, because I know Jesus and He has paid for my sin and I've turned away from that sin and I've turned to follow Him and I continue to follow Him and sometimes I still turn back to that and then I seek His forgiveness and He, he brings me back here and because of that, I'm then able to love the people around me in a way that's unselfish and... I uh, have a desire that other people would be freed from their burden to sin and slavery and follow after God. And so, because I've experienced this, I go and tell other people about this. And when I am overwhelmed with all these things my sin or difficulty or whatever else I turn to God because I love Him and He's my Father and He will take care of me. That's what Christianity looks like. Not checking things off a list. Not saying pious things. Not coming to church regularly. Now, is it good to gather? Absolutely. Is it good to pray and read your Bible? Yes. But the end point of Christianity is maturity. It's not just parking at... I know a lot of stuff, so I'm just going to sit here. So what are you doing with what you know? Are you sharing it with other people and pointing them to God? What are you doing with what you've seen of God's power? Are you rejoicing in it and testifying to other people, this is my God and He is a great God? Are you saying, I know stuff and I've seen stuff, but I don't really believe in God enough to really live for Him, I have to question whether we really know him at that point. People didn't believe the message from God through his servant. I think in part, they didn't recognize that God's servant would be an ordinary man. In Luke 2.52, you're probably familiar with that. It talks about the fact that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He goes in a normal human way from being an infant to a boy to a young man to a, an adult. And I think people were perhaps looking for something out of the ordinary. But for him to be sent by God as the servant, as a normal human being, meant that he went through that process like anybody else. Perfectly, but through that same process. They also didn't believe that it could be someone right around them. Mark 6, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered or marveled at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. Jesus was an ordinary man. Verse 2 He grew up, and yet he has no stately form or majesty. He didn't wear fine clothes, he didn't dwell in Herod's household or in, in one of the one of the Roman palaces. He was not necessarily the most handsome person in the world. Um, it's just he was an ordinary human being that's the point I'm trying to make and the response then is God's servant is despised sorrowful rejected and not valued by those who saw him we see this in the end Matthew 27 particularly in the response of the soldiers at um, Pilate's direction but in the whole response of the crowd and the Pharisees and everyone before that the soldiers of the governor, uh, Matthew 27:27, took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. God exalts his servant after humbling him, and through this humbling, God accomplishes salvation for many nations. Despite the rejection of his own people, God's servant would be accepted by God and rewarded for faithful service. What did this service look like? We see in verses 4 through 9 that God exalts his servant because of his substitutionary sacrifice. First of all, God's servant carries mankind's grief and sin. Even though he carried the grief and sorrows of others, they viewed him as under God's wrath. Galatians 3.13 talked about the fact that the Israelites viewed as cursed anyone who hung on a tree, who was crucified. And so they viewed him as smitten of God, afflicted. How could he possibly be someone that God sent if it appears that God himself is rejecting him? That's what they thought when they saw Jesus crucified. And he was under God's wrath, but not because he deserved it, but on behalf of others. He was thus pierced and crushed and scourged for the sin of others. John 19, verse 34, says this. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Why did Jesus get to the point of them piercing his side with a spear to see if he was dead. Because he was on that cross to bear God's wrath in place of sinners for sin that he did not commit. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. We, the people in Isaiah's day, the people in Jesus' day, all of us in our day, deserved the punishment for sin that Jesus took on himself. And yet he took on himself the sin of those wandering away from God. Romans chapter 3 describes that wandering. Sometimes we have a more inflated idea of ourselves than we should. Paul says this, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, I want you to listen to the the clarity of this passage about where mankind is at apart from God. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or serpents is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They say, well, we're not as bad as all that. Yes, we are. You and I lie and cheat and steal and lust and hate and do everything that God says not to do. And we fail to do anything that God tells us to do, to love our neighbor with all ourselves to love God with all of who we are, none of you can stand up and say I've done that. And I can't stand up here and say I've done that. And so why did Jesus have to come? Why did God send His servant to suffer, to bear the sins of others? Because no human being could bear sin because he would first have to deal with his own sin. And so Jesus comes without sin to take upon Himself the sins of others to bear their sin in the place of sinners, wandering away from God, hopeless and helpless and without any possibility of salvation. Romans 5.8 makes this clear. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no place for us to make an argument, well, God looked down and saw that we would pick Him and that we would love Him and so that's why Jesus died. No, God looked down and said, unless I do something, they will all die in their sin. There is no room for pride and self-righteousness in genuine Christianity in knowing Jesus because we should have a clear and a deep abiding awareness that we deserve nothing except God's wrath. That is not to say people have no value and are worthless as individuals because we're made in God's image and that's still true even though that image is marred. But to say God owes me something, I deserve something, or all of those sorts of things, there's no place for that Because you and I, apart from God's mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus, have nothing to look forward to or anticipate except God's eternal wrath. We don't like to think about that because we like to think about ourselves as nice people and we like to think, well, yeah, I wasn't great, but... And passages like Romans 3 make it very clear, we did not seek after God and we didn't even want to seek after God. And so the only reason, if you know God here this morning, that you know God here this morning, is because God sent his servant to suffer in your place when you could do absolutely nothing to help yourself. And this is why trying to come to God with good works, whether it be, I help the poor, I assist the sick, I pray for people, I I do all these religious rituals, I know all these facts about God, all these sorts of things. Why is that insulting to God? Because as I mentioned earlier, you can do all those things and still not know Him. People say, well, but I know all these things about God. Great. Every one of the demons that will be in the lake of fire forever knows that God is real and knows far more probably in facts about God than you and I do. That doesn't mean they have a relationship with God or will ever be spared that torment. So it's not about our knowledge. It's not about our actions because of what I said in Matthew. So what then are we supposed to conclude when we look at this idea of Jesus in our place? Why is it insulting to God to say, here's what I've done? Because for one, it's worthless and... and unacceptable it's like if you went and you said i want to get my dad a birthday present you go dig around in the garbage and you find something rotten and you're like here isn't this wonderful the old testament says our righteousness is like filthy rags worthless things cast aside that people want nothing to do with It's insulting because it devalues what God has provided. It's as though someone says, I'm going to give you a house worth $300,000. And you're like, hey, I found a penny on the sidewalk. Let me buy it from you. Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely valuable in a way that if you bring anything to God and say, well, yeah, Jesus, but also me, you are saying to God, not Jesus at all, only me. And God says, unless you humble yourself in repentance and come to me, you cannot receive salvation. This is the point of what Jesus talked about when he says that it is um, impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and it's very hard for a rich man to get into heaven because he thinks he can buy his way to God. And say, well, I'm not rich. Well, maybe you think that you can sort of run some sort of scheme on God and persuade him. I can't buy it, but maybe I can convince him. There is nothing that you can say. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can bring to God that will get you a relationship with God. The only thing that God will accept as a basis of your sin being forgiven and dealt with and you being able to come before him as belonging to him instead of as his enemy, the only basis for that is Jesus and what he has done in your place. So don't trust in anything else. Don't bring anything else to God. It's insulting and it's unacceptable and it will condemn you to hell. Even though innocent, God's servant in verses 7 through 9, suffers oppression and injustice as he's punished for the sins of others, he doesn't defend himself. We see this in verse 7. He did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that's led to slaughter. We see this in uh, Matthew 27. Um, Pilate tries to get him to defend himself. He says, don't you hear the accusations that are being brought against you? And he did not answer him with regard to a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Going back to the, you will astonish kings by your response and going back here to this illustration of, Jesus doesn't defend himself. Now, Jesus had already acknowledged that he was the Lamb of God and the King of the Jews and all those sorts of things. And so when they continue to bring these charges against him, he just stands there and he doesn't defend himself. John 1 made it clear (coughs) that he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And so Isaiah anticipates and picks up on that same imagery. Not only did he not defend himself, but he would willingly die in the place of the people. We see this in John chapter 11. Ironically, in the words of a man who had rejected God, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account. It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Caiaphas prophesies perhaps unknowingly, or at least not realizing all that he was saying. It's better for us that he dies and our nation is preserved. and The Romans don't come take our place away. But John says God used his words as a prophecy of what was really true. Jesus was going to die for the sins of the nation and provide salvation not only for them, but for those outside of the nation of Israel. And this was in fulfillment of God's plan. As this continues to unfold in Isaiah 53, we see that Jesus the servant would be treated as a criminal, yet buried in a rich man's grave because he was innocent. Well, was he treated as a criminal? He was crucified between a thief, two thieves, right? Was he buried in a rich man's grave? Joseph of Arimathea at the end of Matthew 27, a rich man, a follower of Jesus, donates his own tomb for Jesus to die who has died to be buried in. And so he was assigned with wicked men. He should have been buried with them, and yet a rich man steps up, and he is buried in that place. Why? Because he was innocent. They had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. God's servant would be exalted after his substitutionary sacrifice, and this exaltation would come as his reward from God. And so we see thirdly in the last few verses that God exalts his servant as his rightful reward. God caused his suffering to accomplish salvation in verse 10 through 12. He would become a guilt offering. This parallels what we see in Leviticus 5, uh, 14 through 6, 7. If he would give himself as a guilt offering, what was a guilt offering? It was a, it was a payment. It was a dealing with the guilt of sin. If Jesus would give himself as the payment for sin, then the reward would come, which we'll talk about in a moment. So he would become a guilt offering. He would justify many by taking their iniquities upon himself. We see this in verse 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And Paul expands on this in Romans chapter 3 where he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all those who believe, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By his knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And then he would be counted as a sinner but intercede in holiness. He himself at the end of verse 12 bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In Hebrews 4 through 6 there is this picture of Jesus as the high priest. The one who both bore our sin and goes before God about our sin. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is seen by the world as a sinner. God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might receive the righteousness of God in him. And because of that, he is able to intercede for sinners. So God caused his suffering to accomplish salvation and God rewarded his sacrificial obedience. He would have offspring and life according to verse 10. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will be satisfied in the knowledge of God. He will see it and be satisfied. And Jesus sees it and demonstrates this in John 17 as he gives what's often called the high priestly prayer. He looks forward to not just the agony of the crucifixion, but also what it will accomplish in bringing people to God so that they would have unity with God as he has unity with God so that they would know God as he knows God. All of those things are accomplished by his sacrifice and brought satisfaction and brought redemption. And he would receive an inheritance. We see in verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great. He'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors though he himself was not a sinner. And we see in Ephesians 1, this glorious picture, that God gives the church to Jesus as his inheritance. Ephesians 5, the same thing, that he would present for himself the church as his bride without spot or blemish or anything of that sort. Of the picture of what we see in Revelation, that when God's people come before God, Jesus receives us who are trusting in God all throughout history and all across the world as the inheritance, the reward, the fulfillment of what he looked forward to and went through in the crucifixion. So do we see from Isaiah 52 and 53 that Jesus is the suffering servant. He died in place of sinners to deal with their sins when they could not. He was unique. He suffered in a way that none of us could because we're all sinners. We couldn't do what Jesus did, And yet, there's also the reality that as we are joined to him, we share in his death and in his life. So what does this look like for us? Listen to a song that's uh, based on some of the thoughts of the Puritans from long ago. When you lead me to the valley of vision, I can see you in the heights. And though my humbling wouldn't be my decision, it's here your glory shines so bright. So let me learn that the cross precedes the crown, To be low is to be high, that the valley is where you make me more like Christ. Let me find your grace in the valley. Let me find your life in my death. Let me find your joy in my sorrow, your wealth in my need, that you're near with every breath in the valley. In the daytime there are stars in the heavens, but they only shine at night. And the deeper that I go into darkness, the more I see their radiant light. So let me learn that my losses are my gain to be broken is to heal that the valleys where your power is revealed. And so what does a passage like this call us to? If God's servant humbled himself, that if we are going, then if we are going to come to God through his servant, we have to do so humbly. At the point of beginning to trust in Jesus and every point thereafter, there can be nothing of coming to God and saying, God, I deserve this because of, and fill in the blank, something about ourselves. Jesus suffered humbly, and God rewarded his humility. We must come before God humbly if we wish to receive salvation. And if we have received that salvation, then what should Jesus' sacrifice mean for us? It should mean constant and unceasing thanksgiving to God for having delivered us. It should mean a sense that we owe our lives to Him. It should mean that if we have experienced this, we want others to experience it too. It should mean that if Jesus died and went through all of this because of our sin, then how can we love our sin and live in our sin? It should mean that if God showed his love for us in this way, we should want to know God more day by day. It should mean that if we hope to experience what Jesus experienced, that we recognize that we don't get all the rewards of heaven while we are yet sinful, while we are yet imperfect, while we are yet in this life and we don't necessarily even expect that life will be rewarding and fulfilling and full of no trouble because if it wasn't for jesus why would we expect that it would be for those who follow him and yet despite all that we are comforted by verses like in this world you will have tribulation but do not fear i have overcome the world So we don't have to have this constant despair of, well, I'm just waiting for the next bad thing to happen in life. That's not what I'm saying. But we recognize that life will be harder if we follow Jesus because life was not easy for Jesus. People don't want to hear God's truth. They don't want to see God work. If our lives are hard, it's not always because of us following Jesus. Sometimes it's because we've stubbornly sinned. But if we follow Jesus, they will also be hard at different points. But it will be worth it, because even as God humbled Jesus, Jesus sacrificed Himself and then God exalted Him, as we humble ourselves and follow after God and give up anything and everything in this world to follow after Jesus, we too will share in his exaltation someday. We will have a reward that is worth far more than anything that this life has to offer, and will fulfill the purpose for which God created us in the first place. Why did God make you? God didn't make you to get a lot of money, to get a lot of stuff, to chase after hobbies, to have people think well of you because you post nice pictures online, To get at a certain point in your corporate career to see the world some of those things may happen in the course of your life but they're not the purpose for which god made you why did god make you god created you in christ jesus for good works that we should walk in them but that will only happen when we see the pattern of jesus humbling and obedience exaltation not the pattern of the prodigal son Give me all this ahead of time. Go do whatever I want. Because there still has to be the humbling before there can be the forgiveness and the exaltation. And so, let's pray that we'll reflect on these truths and marvel at what Jesus has done and that reflecting on it will spur us to live in a way that's acceptable to him. Let's pray. Lord, there was a line from the song that we sang earlier that said, ruined sinners to reclaim, and that's what you are doing through the gospel. I don't deserve your forgiveness. None of us do. And yet, in Jesus, we can find true forgiveness. We can find eternal life. We can find a purpose for life. And we can live a life that is full of joy despite the sorrow of hope, despite all of the uncertainty. I can't see people's hearts here this morning, Lord. If there is anyone here that is trusting in anything, help them to stop trusting in that. If they're trusting in anyone besides Jesus, help them to stop trusting in that other person. If they're trusting in... Something that they can bring before you. We can bring nothing before you to earn our way to you. Even as those who have begun to follow after you, sometimes we still have this false idea in our heads. You will be more happy with me if I... And the reality is we don't add to our relationship with you by obedience we obey because it honors you and it pleases you and we have some small opportunity to serve you in gratitude but we don't do it to try to make ourselves more acceptable to you because if we do then we're trying to earn your favor after salvation in the same way that we can't earn it before salvation only Jesus Lord, there may be some in here who are wondering if it's actually worth it to follow after you. I don't mean follow after you like just sort of go along in life and not do any really terrible sins. I mean follow after you in humble, daily, consistent service. Maybe there's fear, maybe there's pride, maybe there's doubt. Whatever there is that's an obstacle to saying, it is worth it to follow you and serve you, and that is the reason for which you have made us. I pray that you would undo those things in our minds and turn our hearts to you. So if we don't know you, someone in here, bring that person to salvation. If we're not really following you, but we've begun to follow you in the past and we really actually have a relationship with you, then revive our hearts and stir them once more to follow you as we should. If we're faithfully following you and if our hearts are stirred and we want to keep doing that, then may the memory of what Christ has done on our behalf be part of what motivates us to get up each day and to go out in the world and to live for you. May we say honestly, In the words of the song, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.